Hello everyone and uh, welcome to the Mike Armstrong podcast show and this uh, evening I'm joined by uh, Jay from the Pituity Foundation and Kudos Fundraising um, who uh, is an expert uh, charity fundraiser. Uh, he's just uh, started his own uh, uh, business, uh, Kudos Fundraising, and we're going to have a chat about uh, about that. Uh, but I met Jay quite a few years ago now at Intrabiz, and uh, he's a big networker the same as me. So I look forward to having a chat with him. Uh, how are you doing today, uh, Jay? You okay? I'm really good, thanks, Mike. I'm really good. Thanks for inviting me along on this podcast. Brilliant, brilliant. So um, I know uh, that the fundraising, uh, Kudos Fundraising business is new. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about that and, and where it come about from. I'll give a bit about my background, Mike. So I I got into fundraising on a personal basis. I was I was fifteen and I had rare brain disease. So I, I literally I had ten percent chance of living at one point. My parents were called to say their goodbyes. I was in a coma for a week. I was in an induced coma to stop seizures for a week. <laughs> I hospital for three months. Um, during that time, I was doing my GCSEs, the GCSEs from my hospital bed. And it sort of, it was a sort of wake up call I needed in my life. So after that, I wanted to start giving back to society. And I started doing small types of fundraising events, sort of fun runs. And it was always on my bucket list because I had to learn to walk again. Doctors said that I'd never run a marathon they said i'd struggle to get back to playing football so i was like i'm gonna run a marathon this is my idea i'm gonna run a marathon and they like laughed me and said that won't be possible jay so when someone tells me that i can't do something that's the biggest motivation factor that i need if someone says that i can't do it that's like holding a red drag to a bull so i ultimately i signed up for london marathon i ran Five years in succession, I raised over thirty thousand on, on a personal basis for various charities. I went through university, did a degree in business studies and HR, and I remember running running one time for this charity called Children with Leukemia, and the fundraiser there he turned around and he's like, Jay, what do you do for work? And I said, I'm HR manager in a hospital. He said, do you enjoy it? I said, I absolutely hate it. I said, thanks, so boring and tedious. He said, how come you don't work for charity? You'd be brilliant. He said, you're so passionate about it. You're so motivated. And I was like, um, I'm living in Wales, mate. I said, I'm up in sticks. I said, you're all based up in London. And he turned round and he opened my eyes. He said, you'd be surprised. There's quite a lot of charities out there that um, I've got regional offices in Cardiff or West Wales. Keep your eye out. And literally about two weeks later, I switched off for cancer charity. Worked there for seven years and I absolutely loved the job. Then I was head hunted for a job at the Petuary Foundation. Small charity I didn't really know much about, but that was the best career move I ever made because I started working there and they were a small charity of six. They were bringing in about a quarter of a million. The only fundraiser and I took income to on average about half a million a year but that would income pretty much overnight and over the years then i've become a successful fundraiser i'm used to smashing targets on a constant basis so during i've also run various training courses i'm a mentor to other fundraising professionals i've been for two years now i've sat on several boards been a trustee for various charities and 
with this global pandemic, when this broke, I volunteered to go down to full days a week at the Foundation, so I was on 80% salary just to save the charity money. And that meant I took a hit financially, but it also meant that I had more time on my hands. And so I thought, what's the best way forward? I knew of a couple of charities that were struggling, so I thought, why not put my put my skills to, to use and set up my own fundraising consultancy? So that was four weeks ago, and here we are four weeks later, and I've got Kudos fundraising up and running. We've got our first few clients signed up already. Brilliant, brilliant. So um, usually I ask people uh, a mixture of what led them to where they're at now and what they've been doing in the lockdown uh, to pivot. But uh, you've covered all of that already, so that's really, really good. Um, tell us, um, tell us about your best fundraising activity to date, and tell us a little bit about uh, some of your strategies that you'd like to help other charities with under the Kudos fundraising banner. In terms of the best fundraising event, it's, it's hard to put your hand on it, if I'm honest, because there's been so many <coughs> stand-up events. I've organised a black tie dinner in London. In terms of success financially, the, the gala dinner in London was off the scales. We raised over £100,000. Um, I was having Mayfair, it was a phenomenal success, but it was a lot of work and... Ultimately, there were other areas for the Pituitary Foundation that struggled as a result because so much of my time and effort was in that event. Yeah. <clears throat> and in terms of return on investment, I find events such as mountain treks or runs, I find them a lot easier to coordinate because it's a lot less time-consuming and it costs a minimal. But then when you've got a team that are really cohesive and are really mixed together that's where you see fundraising end of office scale so in the last couple of years i've introduced ben nervous as a, as a track snowden in three years alone we've raised over one hundred and twenty thousand pounds which for a charity with only two thousand database it's quite substantial yeah brilliant brilliant so um what is it that you in your experience charities tend to suffer with from a fundraising point of view and and how can they overcome those problems in in my view there's some charities especially larger charities they take fundraisers for granted they just see some they see fundraisers as a number is joe blogs doing this event how much will they are they going to raise and they just focus on how much they're going to raise because i've come at it from a different angle i've come at it from a fundraiser myself and i i flip it i think how would i want to be how would like i like to have been treated so there were, there were instances for example where i ran a london marathon one year for a for a charity i won't mention the name of the charity i won't shame them I'd run a London Marathon, I'd raised £2,500, I had a blank, I had a really boring letter, a bland letter saying, thanks for raising 1300 they obviously hadn't updated the database, I can see what had happened, and they just sent stand, bog standard, thank you, and I was looking at it, it was left me less than inspired, to say the least, and then... Three weeks down the line, I had a call off another department from the same charity saying, um, Hi Jay, um, I noticed that you donate £10 a month to our charity. 
I was like, yeah, um, we can see that you do it in memory of your grandfather. And I was like, yeah. They made no reference to the fact they just ran a marathon to them. Um, how would you like to donate, increase that donation to 20 pound a month? We, we better guarantee that your front grandfather would be so proud of you. And I was just like, wow. And transferring that direct debit immediately, I was like, this is just completely taking the piss. They just looked at me as a number, one of thousands who were donating. They put no time and effort into building a relationship with me and they just jumped in expecting me to double my donation. So I cancelled all ties for that charity. And that's what I try to, I treat every fundraiser, whether they raise 50 quid or whether they raise 50,000, I try to treat every fundraiser the same. I always make time for fundraiser, I'm always on the phone. Um, when we've got teams running half marathons or we've got teams trekking, just to try and build that team spirit, I'll set up WhatsApp groups so all the runners, all the trekkers, they'll get to know each other. So I make it as enjoyable an experience as possible and then ultimately the rewards are in the retention rates because if people have enjoyed that experience, they ultimately want to do it again and the returns of people that come back year after year is, is phenomenal. So that's the strategy I use. I, I treat other, I treat fundraisers how I would have liked to have been treated rather than just thinking of them as how much are they going to bring in for my charity. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, sounds to me it's very similar to sales at the end of the day. It's very similar to sales. Look after your customers no matter how big or small they are because the small ones turn into big ones and the big ones can exactly. be lost very easily and so you've got to then replace them. Like, you know, so whoever, whoever they are, you've got to look after them and people are just people at the end of the day. So if you don't yes. treat them well, they'll you lose them. And if you treat them well, exactly they'll that. stay. It is very much like sales in that respect, Mike. Very yeah. much like sales. Yeah, good, good, good. Now you've uh, you've you've uh, battled with uh, death and near death and these sort of experiences a number a number of times. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that, because uh, you know I know you're always into one thing or another with uh, with your health and different things. Um. So when I was fifteen, I had I had a, a, a rare brain disease called encephalitis. Um, that's basically similar to meningitis, but it's swelling of the actual brain. So my brain was swelling into the skull, the skull obviously can't move. That caused me to have scarring of the brain as a result. Um, that led to epilepsy as a result of scarring. So every day I've got to take 10 tablets just to maintain a normal existence. If I don't take 10 tablets a day, then essentially I'm at risk of having a seizure and I don't want to run that risk, quite frankly. Oh. Um, unfortunately, that's been under control for past, for past since I was 15, it's longer I can't remember, past 20-odd years. And then two years ago, um, when I had the illness when I was 15, I'll be honest, it was really resilient and this was before smartphones, so I was going into completely blank, I didn't know anything about it. If I remember actually, I'd been in a coma for a week, but I didn't realise that I'd been in a coma. And at 15, I just started going out drinking with my mates, I'd be going to my clubs, and I just came round from a coma. Wednesday, that I'd gone into the seizure, so I'd gone into the coma on a Wednesday. I woke up thinking that it was the Thursday morning, and the first words I said when I woke up was, um, Am I going to be able to still go to Coolers on Saturday night? That's local nightclub. 
Yes. My mother said she's great in the bars when she was a You've been out for over a week. And the first thing you say from all the doctors and nurses is, can you go to my club? You were 15. She's like, we died in Paris, man. You started but, late, uh, though, for coolers. <laughs> I, I didn't sort of grasp the severity of it. I, no. was, I was in hospital in the Heath. This was before the special children's unit. So I was on a neurological ward. There was 70, 80-year-old patients on the ward with me. And I'd be getting up, but I'd be like, do you want a paper or something? And I'd literally be making a list. And I'd be running into the shop, doing everyone's paper list. But one really funny story, actually, I remember I was hooked up to a drip. Uh, I, was, I was on antibiotics for, for quite a while. I was hooked up to a drip. And I was in Tibetan at the time. I used to like horse racing. I because it was Gold Cup Day. for my ankle to put a bet on for me. And I just dozed off. I fell asleep on the, on the bed. Just dozed off momentarily. <laughs> I could hear Channel 4 horse racing. Um, the, the music coming on so I just half asleep I just jumped up thinking that I'd missed it Whoa! I ripped out my arms this blood literally just pouring out of my arm everywhere yeah. um, and, then, and then a couple of years ago so you haven't really covered a, a couple of years ago then so what happened then um, so that was when I was 15 but I, I got back to normal but then two years ago I had meningitis um that was a scary time for normas because obviously you know more then and you can google things and I got the door done out yeah. like that on the phone so I got more cares, I got more worries and I was in hospital for a couple of weeks at that point and I, I, one night I was really scared. There was one night I was, my temperature was sort of 40 plus so I, I was, I felt freezing but my temperature was through the roof. So I had fans on either side of me, they just they just trying to bring the temperature down. But I, it was like torture. Then, so I had no sleep during the night. Then I had a spinal tap, a lump puncture in the morning. I was heavily dosed up on morphine as well. And they took me to have my MRI. And I was in the MRI scanner. And I don't get um, claustrophobic or anything. I, I just deal with it. I've had loads of MRIs on my knee, my elbows, my wrists brain previously, never an issue. I was in the MRI scan and I'm looking down and I could see the, the radiographers, the scanners, like literally calling colleagues over and they were like looking at it really intently. And I'm like, shit, this is worse than I thought. And then instantly I'm thinking, because they were like, whenever I've had scans in the past, you just see someone there and they just, they're quite static. They're not really, they just grab the scan as if there's no movement. So many people were coming and going, and I was like, oh my God, it's worse than I was thinking. And also started running from my mind. I was like, I pictured not being able to see my daughter growing up, and I, had, I was filling up, I was actually filling up. Then I got wheeled back to my room, I was in isolation room, I got wheeled back to my room, and there was a vicar sitting on my, on my bed. And the last time I'd seen a vicar in hospital before that, was when he was reading my granny about the last rites. I was like, what have they told you? They haven't told me. <laughs> Not the best thing to see, is it? Not the best thing to see. It's like... <laughs> I actually started crying. And I was like, oh, my God. Because I, I, my, my nerves, everything was shot. I wasn't thinking straight. But 
I spoke to the doctor later, the consultant, and he explained that because I've got like, quite heavily scarring on my brain from an adenocarcinoma, scanners had never seen it before. So they were calling their colleagues just to have a look at it. And he said, if you were Dr. J, he said, if you see something for the first time, are you intrigued by it? Would you call your colleagues to have a look? Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I said, but I wasn't thinking that at the time. Yeah. But yeah, I'm in a full recovery though, thankfully. So yeah. And you haven't fancied like... taking on a bit of COVID yet then? <laughs> Not yet. I'm bracing myself. The luck I have, I need to pick everything up from bracing myself. I'll have it sooner or later than my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm expecting to see your know, pictures of you like recovering in, <laughs> on Facebook a few weeks later, like you know, and then and then go and do a marathon again. <laughs> that was the thing when I had meningitis. I came out of hospital with meningitis. So I came out in September. Then I did the Cardiff half marathon in October. So it was like about a month later. Yeah. It shouldn't. It wasn't. It was a bad decision. Yes. And, mm. and, very much Caesar day live, live each day headstrong they're headstrong there on that one but uh, I did the Cardiff half marathon about uh, four or five years ago now and uh, I always wanted to do the London marathon like you I've been growing up watching it you know we're both massive sports fans and I just love yeah. atmosphere you know what I mean and I love major sporting yeah. events so I've always wanted to do the London marathon but I did about uh, six months training for the Cardiff Half Marathon, three months on a bike, and then three months running, because I was doing a ride from Brecon to the Bay first. Yeah. Uh, so I did three months training for that, did the ride, and then started running, did three months training. But up to about 10 miles was okay. The last three miles killed me. So like that's put me off doing like the London Marathon now, because it really killed me. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll have to train for a year to be able to do the London Marathon. But, you know... You obviously have done it a few times and, and, and that, and, and you did the Cardiff half just after a really bad illness spell, etc. So what is it that keeps you going through that time? Well, you know, how, how are you able to do it? I'll be honest, I've got a good general level of fitness. So I, when I used to run marathons before, I'm not, I'm not a runner by any stretch. I don't even enjoy running. I only used to do running for the, the fundraising aspect of it. Yeah. But the London Marathon the first time it's like you say it's the atmosphere it's the crowds I'll never forget I was, I was standing on the start line my first day of the London Marathon and I was just like oh my god <laughs> it dawned on me the prospect and this man came over to me tapped me on the shoulder and he went first marathon and I was like yeah and he said once you cross that finish line it's like a drug you'd be addicted and I was like I have to take your word for that honestly god because once you get to certain points you feel like stopping and you've got a crowd cheering your name and the crowd just it's, it's indescribable and when you cross that finish line it was literally like a drug i yeah. did i signed up for the next five years it was, it was insane yeah brilliant and um i think the consultancy you know um the fact that you've lived the the person who you're helping's life if you like yeah and you've lived that fundraising uh, life as a amateur fundraiser and a passionate fundraiser first but then as an experienced professional and whatever over years i can i can say there can't be too many better consultants i would have thought for helping charities understand get in the mind of of the people they're working with and helping and all the rest of it that's it exactly that's what i believe one of my strengths to be and yeah. i'm not a type of so if, if I go into charity to help and things say they're struggling, what I pledge is if I go in and I help with a, a fundraising campaign or I help with a, an appeal, 
I guarantee two to one return on investment or there's no fees to pay. Oof. Because if I went to a charity and they barely covered the cost of paying me, I wouldn't feel that it wouldn't sit right with me morally to take money from them. So I only ask for a fee if I'm giving them a return on investment. Yeah, brilliant. So, that's great, yeah, and, and, and there's lots of industries where they take, uh, you know, poacher turned gamekeeper, you know, uh, hacker versus the security industry, etc. You know, that's often some of the best people you can take them, convert them, and and get yeah. the best work out of them. So, uh, yeah, well done on that and the cha- and the uh, the charity consultancy. How do people get in touch with you if they want to um, if they want to get involved? So if they want to email me, it's jjy at kudosfundraising.com or they can visit the Twitter page, it's at kudosfundraising. Instagram's the same, Facebook the same. Or you can ring me on my mobile, it's 7 and LinkedIn as well, if anyone wants to connect on LinkedIn. Okay, good, 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 good. And um, you've done some um, recent pivots, obviously, because of this uh, situation, obviously yourself with your business, um, but also, you know, with some of the charities you've worked with. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what problems some of the charities have had during this lockdown and some of the solutions you've, you've done to, uh, to, to solve those problems. Um, so firstly, with the, with the Pituitary Foundation, a third, we, we bring in about 400, 500,000 a year. Um, a third of that consists of event income, and typically our busiest period is March to, spring, uh, March to June, because that's when events typically take place. You've got London Marathon, treks. Obviously, overnight, our event income just disappeared. So it was about being creative, it was about being reactive. I couldn't sit still and think, right, I feel sorry for myself and right, events is on, what the hell can we do? It was about thinking, being creative, and I came up with an idea. Um, it's a really supportive membership base of the Petruity Foundation. So the idea was simple. We built a designated website, it's called Petruity 500 Faces. We wanted 500 people to commit to either donating £100 or pledging to raise a minimum of £100. Um, the target was to raise £50,000. Within 12 weeks, we had 260 people sign up, so half in terms of the targeted numbers, but they'd raised over 51000 so we'd smashed the target in terms of income. Um, there was also various appeals as well to, to rectify the, the situation. So I, I can appreciate not everyone can afford £100, so that was top level. And then we, we did a COVID appeal just for anyone to donate anything, which again, I think that raised about 20, 30,000 pounds. So we've, we've sort of, we've got through this situation. There was a time that we thought we might fold as a charity, but we've, we've managed to navigate that. Yeah. And I also, I did a bit of work with a charity called Bullies Out. Um, I could see that they were struggling, so I offered my services to those and They'd never run an appeal in the past, so I put together an appeal for them. I put, I started managing their social media for a week, um, launched the appeal, and within five days, I think it raised £7,000. Yeah. Just helped out for the, the muddy waters as well. 
good, 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 good. Yeah. So it sounds to me that um, you know, especially with the maturity, because you had those uh, invested relationships, if you like, that was what allowed you to pivot. So you know, not only. Yeah was the creativity there to do it but if you like the support was there because these people didn't just feel like a number they felt like somebody who was part exactly. of part yeah. of the the mission they were on the same mission as you to support the charity and help the people who the charity supports so you know generally those people if you look after people then if you go knocking on their door and calling upon them because you need a favor of them or you need you need them to do something else because one event's gone and there's a temporary event or a new event in in place then that is where yeah. you start to, uh, to to reap the the, the um, effects, if you like, of that long-term relationship with them. I think the other um, the other thing that helped us really was when because patchouli patients they are classed in the at risk um, the, the at risk category, so there's a lot of um, scared and anxious patients, and they were contacting the patchouli foundation helpline and nurse and. The numbers contacted our helpline. The demand for services just went through the roof. In three days, when it was announced that we were going to lockdown, we received more calls in three days than we would typically in a month. So we had to extend the hours. We added hours each day. We added hours on over the weekend. Usually it's Monday to Friday service. We added hours on the weekend. And then I think because so many people were supported during that time, when we clicked the message and then said, look, we've been here for you the past two or three weeks, or there's even, now we need your support more than ever. I think because people have had that support, they wanted to give something back, and that's helped us enormously, and really did. Yeah, good. If ever you do any uh, uh, live events, or when they come back, and you need someone to shake the bucket, I'm always willing to help. I've uh, uh, I've done a couple of those shake the bucket events, and I'm not frightened to ask people to get their money out and to to, to, to stick it in the bucket, like you know, which some people can still be a bit uh, frightened to do that. So I, I did it for the um, you know Nikki Piper's charity, the hospice once, um, you know, with the uh, the Lexus downhill thing that they, they do with Dom. Yeah, I yeah. managed to get quite a lot of donations that day, like you know, by really working the crowd, like you know. No, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so, so that's, in fact, that's probably something you could add to your consultancy, would be uh, outsource fundraisers, like a team. Yeah, yeah? definitely. Because definitely. Um, as somebody in sales all my life, the, the, the personnel, the people, make a massive difference to the results. So Definitely. some of the charities may be struggling because they've got the wrong people. They've got the people who can't actually get the things done. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that that's, that's an area that I would uh, uh, suggest that you could uh, enhance other charities as well. For example, things like the Interviz Expo and other big expos, taking a team into places like that and really work in the room and, you know, yeah. getting the most out of it because some people, they just... They're too polite, you know. Some, it's the same as in sales. Some people just, just can't sell. You know what I mean? They're too frightened to ask for the order. You know, so you know you gotta you gotta ask, otherwise you don't get. I don't know. That's exactly that's my motto in life, especially yes. in fundraising. Don't ask, you don't get. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, yeah, well, thanks very much for uh, finally getting the time to come onto my podcast. I know I've been pushing you for a bit. Sorry for the, it's been a bit mental the last couple of weeks. So. Yes, I, well, you know, uh, there's there's never a harder time in life, I don't think, than when you're starting a new business, <laughs> especially dealing with some 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 clients who are really struggling right now and need you to to, to perform some miracles for them. Yeah, 
Yeah. So don't worry about that. I uh, I understand how busy it can be, like you know. Uh, but thanks for coming on and uh, and chatting a little bit about your experience and that. So that was good. Um, have you been uh, shielding yourself, or have you? Uh, you don't have to shield. I, I have. I have. Like I've been following the guidance, but um, I haven't been no. shielding. I just thought you know because of the the recent illness. You know, and the his, his historical uh, one, where you weren't in that category, luckily enough, no. But you know, we're all pretty much shielded anyway, because there's not much we can do, can't we? So, you know, there's not much lo- uh, difference between lockdown and shielding. You know, the only difference is the supermarket. I've because I've actually been out more under lockdown conditions than I were before that because I've been self-employed working from home for the last like nine years yeah. and uh, I used to probably go out Thursdays, Fridays in the weekend but now I go, when it was only an hour I took the hour every single day because like yeah. it's either use it or lose it so it was like use it and uh, and so yeah, and, and ever since it's been not a, a, an hour, I've been out you know, probably twice a day, because uh, I'm doing a seventy-five day challenge called seventy-five hard. I've seen that. Seen it. Yeah, you want to listen to this challenge and actually try and get you some. You know, you're on about event people. Well, these are, uh, you you could get your fundraisers yeah to do these events, but virtually on their own, but tally it up. So yeah, so, yeah. so they can set. So, so like for example, I didn't think about it, but I could have got sponsored to whether I'll do the seventy five days or not, and you could get like a pound a day or something like that. So if people do the whole seventy five days. And it's a really good uh, challenge. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's uh, two forms of exercise a day. You've got to be on a diet. You've got to drink a gallon of water. And you've got to um, uh, not drink any alcohol, which is the tough one. Yeah. And read 10 pages from an educational book. So it's a really good sort of mix of different things. Um, I actually don't find the challenge tough. I find the time management tough. <laughs> How many days? I'm... Uh, I started the f- uh, 1st of June, so I think I'm 31 in. Oh, yeah. 31 in, so I'm nearly halfway through now. Uh, not, not, not that long ago, I was a third in, so it's, it's building up steam. The first uh, 19 days, I'd say, was easy. By 20, 20 to 30 was the compound effect of no break, no time yeah. off. Yeah, no, yeah. no, on a diet, so no treats, no goodies, no alcohol. Yeah, so like... You know what I mean? A, a month of, of no treats, no alcohol, no goodies, reading a book all the time, plus adding that to my business goals of podcasting, YouTubing, social media, and yeah. uh, networking, which have gone from like one or two events a week to seven. You know, I'm doing about seven a week at the moment online, but it's easier because it's online, like, you know? But yeah, yeah. so it's, uh, it's just time, how, how you manage all of those things. But like yourself, I've pivoted in the lockdown as well. Uh, I've moved to being uh, instead of just doing uh, social media and blogging and SEO and all of that which I can still do for people but I'm looking to do more helping them with things like podcasting YouTubing more the cutting edge of, of, of stuff and not you know the older sort yeah. of you know Facebook and that but I'm also doing LinkedIn pods which is good so it's getting people to like and comment on your LinkedIn stuff to go further um, so yeah. just, just 
just some more fancy stuff really that I still do help people with the traditional stuff and all of that but I just thought actually it's a good time to pivot do some more fancy stuff do some more stuff online and that's going to go global because I want to go global I want to be a global speaker so that's why podcasting and YouTube is going to go further global than Facebook Twitter and LinkedIn will which is still tends to be your country you know and the people around you um, yeah, so that's that's been good. And also I want to mentor people, coach them, um, train them, do more of that side of things, which was always part of my business. I've been doing a bit of consultancy and that, but more mentoring now. I've written a book and I've got a load of other books I want to write and I'm uh, looking to do all those sort of things. So I'm on the path now to become a global speaker. That's the mission, right, you know. Good luck, good Mike. Good luck. Yeah, yeah brilliant. But uh, yeah, great to uh, catch up with you and to... Uh, you know, get you on the podcast and the YouTube channel and to find out about your business and uh, look forward to uh, maybe having uh, you on again in the future and telling us yes. about uh, the, the great uh, kudos you've got in building your business up to uh, as big as you want it to be. Definitely, mate, definitely. All right, brilliant. Thanks. There's um, nothing else left for me to say now other than have a great day. I know I will. And thanks very much for listening. Cheers, Jay. Uh, Thank you and uh, good night.